pray. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be found acceptable in your sight, for you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can probably tell if you paid attention to the opening screen, we begin a new message series today called Road Rules. It's going to last for four weeks, and beginning today, we're going to look at four events in the life of Jesus. They are four conversations that all came down to a teaching moment in which Jesus summarizes a very powerful life principle with just one simple quote. And all four of these events, all four of these conversations can all be found in Mark chapter 10. Now, I've chosen to call these road rules or the rules for the road because anybody who wants to embark on a spiritual journey or anybody who wants to reach their final spiritual destination these are good principles for you to learn and to live by. Uh, they are not just rules for beginners. Uh, these are essential principles to live by no matter how many years you've been traveling and no matter how many miles you probably already have on your spiritual tires. This is good for all of us. So in these next four weeks, uh, I hope that you'll read and reread Mark chapter 10 because that's the only place we're going to be for the next four weeks. Mark chapter 10. And when we get to the end of this series, I hope that you know this uh, chapter very well and that you also know these four principles very well. I have to tell you to begin with that when Bible scholars hear Mark chapter 10, they usually think of two different stories. They either think of Jesus teaching about marriage and divorce or they are thinking about that parable or that story of the rich young ruler. <clears throat> but today we're going to focus on what happens between those two events because the chapter does begin with marriage and divorce. It does end with the rich young ruler. But in between these two events, something else takes place. And there's a little story here that you heard Sue read before that's absolutely essential to anyone who wants to live a life in God. It's the story about Jesus and the little children. And, and as we look at it, we're going to hear these words from a different perspective than those who heard these words in the first century. Now, when you sat here and you listened to Sue read the story about let the little children come to me and don't hinder them a lot, you know, we tend to sit there with a little smile on our face because isn't this wonderful? The little kiddos are coming to Jesus and... You know, we live in a culture today that values children simply for being children. Uh, we celebrate the uniqueness of every child. We, we do what we can to make sure that every kid can have a great and wonderful childhood. We often say, well, just let the kids be kids. I mean, after all, they're just kids. But I got news for you. That's not the way it was in the first century. When we hear Jesus say how important it is to behave or to be like a little child, we imagine all the people sitting there nodding their heads in agreement with a smile on their face, kind of like you would when you heard the passage read. But most of them probably responded with a, what? Wait a minute. What are you talking about? I mean, be like little children. Are you crazy? I mean, what does that mean? Well, that's because children... When Jesus spoke, we're in a totally different culture. They viewed children in the days of Jesus a whole lot differently than we do. Children weren't seen. 
in Jesus' day, and for the most part, they were not seen as precious little gems or precious little jewels. They were seen, uh, to a great extent, as burdens, at the very least, and disposable at the very worst. In the Greco-Roman culture of that day, it was not uncommon for unwanted children to just be dumped out, abandoned, and left to die of exposure. Sometimes unwanted children were placed on the Colosseum steps as what they considered to be an offering to the little g gods, where these infants were probably picked up by somebody else and raised to be either street beggars or gladiators or even prostitutes. Even in the good homes of the days of Jesus, children grew up uh, in a be-seen but not heard environment. So when Jesus suddenly starts talking about the value of children, he wasn't exactly preaching to the choir. In addition to teaching a spiritual principle here, he was challenging his listeners to adopt a whole different way of thinking, to see the value of a human life because it's a human life and because he was responsible for creating human life. Now, Jesus had made this, if you read the chapter before, in, in Mark chapter 9, it said that Jesus took a little child in his arms and said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. He'd already said that to the disciples just a few verses before, maybe just a few days, maybe even a few hours before, but his message evidently kind of went right over their heads. Because here we got them trying to prevent what Jesus had just urged them to do. The text for the day said people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, to touch them. But it says that the disciples rebuked them. That's a very strong word, rebuked them. That's the same word that says that when Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, it is very strong language. And then Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Don't do anything to stand in the way of these little children. Now here's something worth noting, and it's kind of one of the first points in our message today. These were not the last disciples who have tried to prevent someone from coming to Jesus. Let me say it again. These were not the last disciples to try to prevent somebody from coming to Jesus. I mean, there are still people today who consider themselves to be gatekeepers of the kingdom. They're kind of like bouncers at an exclusive nightclub, and they think that they're qualified to decide who gets in and who has to stay out. Now, chapter 9, Jesus had already said children were not second-class citizens. He even goes so far as you see this verse, Mark 9, 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to make, a, make another point. This is a bonus point. I'll give you this one free. Because some people argue against infant baptism because they said little babies are incapable of believing. Well, first of all, try taking a little baby away from his mommy and daddy and see if he believes you're his mommy or dad. Second of all, in this little verse, if anyone causes one of these little ones, paideo is the Greek word which literally means infants in arms, babies. And what does it say? If anyone causes one of these little babies who are capable of believing in me, aha, aha, so much for not baptizing babies. 
tuck that one in the back of your head the next time somebody says, oh, you're the church that baptizes babies. You betcha! <laughs> and could I explain something to you? But it says, if you cause one of those to stumble, it would be better for you to have a large millstone hung around your neck and tossed in the middle of the sea. And yet, here are the disciples, a few verses later, deciding that children did not deserve the time or the attention from Jesus. They were certainly not as important as grown-ups who actually put money in the plate or who actually serve in the church. Now, of course, it's not just children who get treated like second-class citizens. I mean, some churches, some churches actually have similar attitudes. They treat the poor as second-class citizens or people of color as second-class citizens or you can kind of fill in the blank. They just don't want others here. We got ours. You go find your own place. Now, this kind of thinking, by the way, is stinking thinking, but this kind of stinking thinking has absolutely no room whatsoever in the kingdom of God. I mean, we cannot ever be known, for example, as a church, First Lutheran Church, that we, we should never ever be known as a place for sending the message either directly or indirectly that certain people are not welcome here or that they are not as good as other people who are here. I mean, we can't be known ever for excluding or hindering anyone from coming to Jesus or joining us in our fellowship. This always must be a place that openly welcomes people. Now, meanwhile, let's go back to the story here. What, what's going on next? The disciples rebuke the children and their parents, and the Bible says when Jesus saw this, he was, I love this word, indignant. Boy, he was hopping mad. And here's another point that's worth noting. When Christians exclude others, Jesus gets mad about it. That's a good point to remember. When we exclude other people, Jesus isn't happy. I mean, who do we tend to exclude? I mean, who in a church ever think of excluding? Well, maybe those people who are less than us. You know, less significant or less affluent or less white or less Republican or less Democrat or less whatever you want to put in there. But we never ever see this in the attitude in, in anything Jesus ever said or anything he ever did. In fact, again and again, who is it that Jesus reaches out to? He reaches out to what we would call the marginalized of society. The lepers, the sinners, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the women, the children, the prostitutes, other sinners. I mean, his example led Paul to conclude in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now Katie, I want you to listen to this. But several years ago, uh, I consulted a church where the youth leader's strategy was to recruit the most popular students in the middle school and high school. Get all of the jocks, all of the athletes, all of the uh, cheerleaders, all of the uh, class officers. And his idea was that uh, if you make your youth group... Uh, Activities where the most popular people come, then the not-so-popular will also show up as well. What do you think of that? (laughs) 
You know, that strategy might actually work sometimes, but more often than not, what you end up with is the group just becomes one more place where cliques dominate and other people still feel left out. Now, I've also known some people who've planted churches who do the exact same thing. They kind of define their market and they go after a certain demographic so that they can fill their church with, you know, all like-minded people, maybe all good-looking young people with children or something like that, so that they all feel comfortable with each other. I mean, some church growth books actually, uh, actually encourage that kind of strategy. But we have to ask ourselves sometimes, how did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? What was Jesus' target audience? What was Jesus' target demographic? Well, I'm going to go back to his very first sermon that he ever preached. In the first sermon Jesus ever preached in Luke chapter 4, he said, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not here to hang out with the in crowd. I'm here to reach out to the out crowd. This is what the kingdom of God was meant to be. And when we try to make churches or our little holy huddles anything different, Jesus gets indignant. Doesn't like it. So after Jesus corrects his disciples, he teaches a very fundamental principle of Christian life here in verses 14 and 15. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. He said, you've got to be like a little child. He said, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now here's the next main point. Jesus is saying something. He's saying, entrance into the kingdom of God is something you receive, not achieve. It's something you receive, you don't achieve it. By nature... He even died in the wool, Missouri Synod Lutherans. By nature, we still have within us this desire to somehow earn our salvation. It's still in our sinful flesh. We want to work our way into heaven. We want to somehow earn a right standing with God. But we need to remember, we can't do it. Why not? It's simple. Romans 6, 3.23 says, For all have sinned. That's every last one of you. Myself included. We've all sinned, come short of the glory of God. And I love this Isaiah passage. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. Look at that for a moment, that Isaiah verse. Isaiah says our righteous acts. He does not say our filthy rags. He says our righteous acts, the very best of any behavior that any of us could ever come up with, is still a rag that you would use to clean up vomit. A vomitous rag, that's what he's talking about. The very best of our behavior. That's why you and I need God's grace. Most of you know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, kind of the bedrock of the Lutheran faith. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. See, friend, salvation is a gift. I mean, if I ask you today, you know, are you going to go to heaven? I mean, have you received salvation? And you say, yeah, it's because God gave it to you. You never, ever earned it. You will always be this way, no matter how long you've been a Christian. You will never get to the point where you will somehow earn God's favor. You will always need His grace, and thank God, it will always be there. 
I'm going to quote my pastor friend, Tony Feller. He gave me a great comment. He said, saving grace, enabling grace, grace that allows me to rebound from failure. Every moment, some aspect of God's grace is at play in my life. I really like that. God's grace just completely surrounds me. I can't get along without it. Next major point. Jesus said that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we need to receive it like a little child. Now, believe it or not, I've been told to grow up once or twice. In fact, not long ago. Grow up. Uh, okay, I kind of understand what it means. That we don't want anybody to act childish, you know, foolish. But to be like a little child. Well, how does a little child receive anything? I think it's with total and complete dependence. I mean, little children are helpless. They are at the mercy of their caregivers. They can't defend themselves. They can't protect themselves. They can't provide for themselves. It's up to their parents or their caretakers to do it for them. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but children do not have a plan B. I mean, children, when they're born, they don't say, well, I'm going to give this mom and dad thing a, a try, and if it doesn't work out, I'll try something else. I'll move along. I mean, they are utterly dependent upon their parents to the point of saying, I can't live without you. And see, God wants us to have that same kind of dependence on him, where we rely not on ourselves, not on our good looks, not on our good works, not on anything else, but on his power, on his mercy, on his grace. A couple of great passages from the book of Psalms. Psalm 63 said, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 62, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. See, when Jesus said that you and I need to receive this kingdom of God as a child, He says we need to learn to be completely and utterly dependent on God. Just like a child is utterly and completely dependent on his parents. Now, then Jesus goes on and says another great thing. He says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must imitate the attitude of a child. Imitate the attitude of a child. See, Matthew's version, if you read it in Matthew 18, he, he quotes Jesus by saying, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was especially true of first century children in the Jewish culture. They learned from the crib that you are to do what you have been told. I'd, I'd almost tell you that every Jewish mama back in the days of Jesus had a t-shirt that said, Because I said so. And little kids learned in the days of Jesus, you did what you were told. They knew that they were to be seen and not heard. Children back in the days of Jesus had no sense of entitlement. They were not likely to barge into a room when you're entertaining company and demand to put on a show for anybody. Uh, and, and the child grew up in those days with a certain amount of humility, especially if they were around grown-ups. And so what Jesus was saying here, friends, in effect, was the attitude that you see in children is the same attitude God wants to see in you. I remember listening to uh, the Chuck Swindoll radio program a number of years ago, a great Bible teacher. He was telling a story about some kids who were building a playhouse. And when they got the playhouse done, they put a sign up outside 
and they posted three rules. Rule number one, no one acts big. Rule number two, no one acts small. Rule number three, everyone acts medium. <laughs> That's the same thing that every last one of us needs to understand. And the same mercy that God has given to you, guess what? He's given it to the person who's sitting next to you, the person who's not here this morning. Uh, at the same mercy that God has shown other people, he'll show for you. That's because what? We're all medium. We're all medium. I like that. You know, even being an extra large, I'm still medium. You know, we're all equally in need of God's grace. So whether you are a Sadducee, or a Pharisee, or a rabbi, or a student, or a Levite, or a leper, or a Jew, or a Greek, or a slave, or a free, or American, or Arab, or rich, or poor, or black, or white, or conservative, or liberal, or educated or not, we are all the same. We all enter the kingdom of God the same way, by humbly depending upon the free gift of God's grace and mercy. And this humble dependence is the way we ought to live each and every day. You know, how I receive presents today is different than when I was a kid. You know, today when I get a gift on Christmas or my birthday, I, I usually say, thank you, I, I, I plan on using this later. Uh, I'm going to watch this DVD later. I'm going uh, to listen to this CD later. I'm going to read this book later. I'll make sure I wear this tie sometime real soon and on and on. Uh, but you know, receiving a gift like a little kid is a whole lot different, isn't it? I remember getting my first bike for Christmas. I had really, really wanted a bicycle. But there was absolutely no way that I could afford to buy a bike. And when I got that bike for my, per my first bicycle, I was absolutely thrilled. It was, it was, it was exactly what I wanted, but it was more than I dared hope for. And my attitude was, i got to get on this thing and start riding it right now. Now, I was living in Nebraska where there was two foot of snow outside and about 20 degrees below zero, but I want to get that bike out of the basement. I want to ride it now. See, it's exciting to get stuff when you're a little kid that you could never have bought for yourself. I mean, you don't want to just put it on a shelf or leave it in the box. Or, or like my bike, you didn't want to leave it in the basement until spring, for heaven's sakes. You wanted it, and you wanted it, and use it right now. That's how you and I ought to receive the Christian life. This life is a gift that you could never, ever have given yourself. It has been freely given to you. It's a gift that you can enjoy and explore every last single day of your life. That's how a child receives a gift, and that's how we should receive God's greatest gift. So here's road rule number one, right there. Life in God is a gift. It is a gift to be received. It is a gift to be enjoyed. It is a gift to be explored with the gracious enthusiasm of a little kid. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If I don't say much else today, friends, I just, want you, I just want to encourage you to receive this gift of life that God so, so wants to give you, like a little child receives a Christmas present. Uh, it's more than you could have ever done for yourself. It's nothing you could have ever bought for yourself. It's more than you could ever hope to even deserve. But it's just yours. You just need to ask for it. You, you just accept it. You just receive it. 
And whether or not today you would receive this gift for the very first time, or whether you said, I received this gift many years ago, I want you to remember that the very first rule of the road in the Christian life is that our life in God is a gift to be received, a gift to be accepted, and a gift to be explored daily. May God grant it for his son's sake. Amen. Let's stand and join together.